Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's program on uh, organ transplantation. My name is David Freeman. I'm the managing editor of the Impact and Innovation Department at the Huffington Post, and I'm also the moderator for today's program, which runs about one hour. Uh, the program is part of the Dr. Lawrence H. and Roberta Cohn forums, and as many of you may know, Dr. Cohn died in January, but we're pleased today to have uh, here Roberta Cohn and their daughter Leslie in the audience, so welcome. Um, and Dr. Cohn, I understand, actually um, is the person who proposed this idea, so he would have been very interested in it. He was actually a cardiac surgeon who was part of the team that completed the first heart transplant in New England back in 1984. Uh, the event is presented in collaboration with the Huffington Post and in association with Harvard Health Publications. Both of those are live streaming the, uh, this event live, live streaming the event, as is the forum. And, uh, I'd like to introduce our panelists uh, as well. So uh, to my immediate right is Dr. Uh, Francis Delmonico. He's a professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School at Massachusetts General Hospital Transplant Center. He's the immediate past president of the Transplantation Society and chief medical officer of the New England Organ Bank. So welcome. And further down is Dr. Daniel Wickler, who is a professor of ethics and population health at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health a faculty member in the Harvard program in Ethics and Health and the first staff ethicist for the World Health Organization. So welcome, Dan, also. And also joining remotely, we have uh, uh, two additional panelists, uh, Doris Taylor, who uh, is director of the Regenerative Medicine Research and director of the Center for Cell and Organ Biotechnology at the Texas Heart Institute in Houston. So welcome, Doris. And finally, Dr. James Yu, who is professor at Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine and an expert in bioprinting. Uh, the program will include a brief Q&A at the end, um, so you can email questions to theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. That's theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. Uh, and you can also participate in live chat that's happening on the forum site uh, right now. So uh, let's get to it. I, I guess, the, you know, why are we here? It's pretty obvious. There are a lot of people who need organ transplants, and there are not enough organs to go around. Um, I checked um, the site of the United uh, Network for Organ Sharing, uh, which coordinates the uh, network system or transplant system in the U.S., and I think there are about 120,000 people on the list, uh, and uh, they're not all going to get the organs that they need to survive, and people die every day uh, on the waiting list for organs. So there are lots of uh, approaches to try to solve this uh, scarcity problem. Um, some are, they're all controversial, they all have their challenge, present certain challenges. Uh, and so we're going to, today we're going to get right into that um, and, uh, you know, look into the challenges, look into what's possible, and hopefully come away with some ideas for uh, changing policy that might help uh, reduce the shortage of, of organs and save lives. So before we get to uh, talk to the panelists, let's watch a brief video. Uh, it's a st story of a girl who needed a new liver. My daughter's name is Caitlin. She's six years old. She loves to sing and dance and go to the beach. She's my inspiration. Her big smile and her big hugs, she completes us. 
When she was born, there was something wrong with her liver. She was very, very sick. Though many times we, we almost lost her. They actually said the only options for your daughter's survival is a liver transplant. It's difficult. There's a big shortage of organ donors, and people die waiting every day, and you don't know if that's going to be your child. My cell phone rang, and it was my daughter's surgeon telling me they got the call. It was like the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders. Her donor's family decided that it's what he would have wanted to donate his organs, and Caitlin was one of the lucky recipients. There's definitely not a day that goes by I don't think of her donor and thank him for giving her a second chance. This is Jeff, Caitlin's organ donor. She'll tell you who he is, and she'll tell you that he saved her life. Organ donation, it's not something you'll re regret. There's over 120,000 people currently awaiting a life-saving organ, and many of those are children. People don't think about that. Children get sick too. I'd implore anyone that has the opportunity to, to say yes, uh, to check the box. And then, most importantly, you need to let your family know what your wishes are. You have a chance to do something great. This gift of life was made possible by an organ donor. Imagine what you could make possible. Right, and that was from organdonor.gov. So, um, Frank, in addition to being a transplant surgeon, you are the, the former president of UNOS, this, the system that coordinates, or the organization that coordinates uh, the transplant system in the U.S. And you travel the world, you're just telling that you were coming back from China, but that's another whole story we can get into later. Um, what, um, can you set the stage for us? What exactly are we dealing with? Can you give us the scope of the problem? Well, setting the stage, first of all, I'd like to say I, I knew Dr. Cohen, and so it's a great delight and honor for me to be here with Roberta and Leslie this morning. And so thank you for your source of uh, making this happen for us. Setting the stage is to say that uh, the great medical advance, one of the great medical advances uh, that we've had in the past 60 years is organ transplantation. It's no longer a matter of an experiment. It's a matter of standard medical care. I'm sure Doris and James will be telling us about innovations and exciting aspects of science that will be coming in the near future. But for now, as David mentions, the great benefit of transplantation can be brought to many people throughout the world. In the United States, clearly, there is a demand, a need for organs that has not been fulfilled. So it is our responsibility at UNOS, at the New England Organ Bank, at the transplant centers around the country to uh, address that requirement, that need, and enable more opportunity for the benefit of organ transplantation. I should also say that uh, it's not just by organs. As a medical officer of the organ bank, uh, there are many tissues that are transplanted today that help so many people. So I'll just make the introduction of our comments to say that organ transplantation is a reality, it's a standard of medical care, and that we all in society, we have a great responsibility to provide for our fellow man by providing organ transplants. And that responsibility of society goes to, we have deceased organ donors, and the oversight of that practice, that it's equitable and fair in the distribution of organs, and we have a responsibility for that practice to the safety and well-being of the living donor that, of course, now represents half of our kidney transplants in this country. So those for introductory remarks, I look forward to hear the ethical aspects of uh, the, uh, Professor Wickler, whom I have a professional regard. We've been together for many years now in 
approaching this, this issue of organ donation and the needs around the world and doing that in an ethically proper manner. So thank you, David, thank you. for that opportunity. Yeah, so um, Dan, it's interesting. This, uh, this tr transplantation seems to present more ethical, a more thorny ethical a set of uh, thorny ethical considerations than some other aspects of medicine. Give us kind of the, the, what, what's your perspective on, on the organ transplantation system as, as an ethicist? Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, I'll answer in just a sec. I just want to record also my appreciation for the uh, Cohn family's contributions uh, to making this possible and of course for Dr. Cohn's advances in transplantation and to record, not to uh, belabor the point, but it's an honor to be sitting next to Frank who has been a uh, leader in uh, the international scene as well as domestic uh, transplant uh, practice in ensuring the highest ethical standards and I hope we'll hear more about what he's been doing internationally. So, uh, but getting back to your direct question, which I think was very well put, why is transplantation uh, so fraught with ethical questions that don't seem to arise in other kinds of uh, healthcare interventions? I think the, the, the answer is that transplantation uses as a resource something that was once part of somebody else's body. And uh, that means that uh, we have to be concerned about uh, the circumstances in which it was elicited or donated or taken. So this is the question of the provenance of the, of the organ. Uh, and then once the organ is in hand, of course, the question is which lucky uh, 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 patient among all those who are in need of this organ is going to be the patient uh, who's, who gets that next organ. And life itself hangs in the balance, and so it's quite understandable that um, uh, the ethical issues are about as serious as they, as they get. Now there's one extra dimension, which uh, I'll just mention here uh, uh, before we move on, which is that um, when transplantation became possible, this had the immediate effect, uh, here I'll use a metaphor, of placing something of enormous value in the bodies of poor people around the world, as long as they were healthy, people whose bodies might not have been worth much except uh, insofar as they could be sold uh, or rented out for labor, but now they have a precious resource. Uh, they have a kidney, for example, they can spare one, and that could be fetch high prices from someone from a wealthy country whose life depends on being able to get that organ. Now, where there's value, there's going to be someone trying to extract that value, and uh, that creates a momentum in uh, at a lightly regulated uh, international uh, forum that creates big problems, the sort of thing that Frank has been a leader in trying to uh, deal with. And I hope we'll talk about this as, uh, during this hour, too. So thanks very much. So it's interesting That's uh, those are the sorts of ethical considerations that have grown out from the, the old world of organ transplantation, I guess. But things are changing because there are uh, new technologies that may open up the possibility to grow, grow new organs. Uh, uh, so that that, that that changes the complexion of the organ transplantation field again. And the two, our two uh, uh, panelists who are, are remote here are both uh, experts in the field of regenerative medicine, um, and I, I think they represent a couple of the most promising approaches to growing new organs and tissues uh, without the need to obtain organs from donors. So Doris, you're really kind of at the forefront of one of these techniques. Can you tell us uh, what, what you know about growing organs uh, that people's bodies will accept? You know, the organ 
uh, organ shortage is clearly a problem worldwide. And along with trying to decide to whom and from whom organs should be harvested and, and to whom they should be given, we really want to try to build new tissues and organs in the lab that will allow us to both overcome the shortage of organs and also overcome one of the current challenges that exists in the field. What we haven't discussed is when you receive an organ, you spend the remainder of your life taking drugs for immunosuppression to keep you from rejecting that organ. So it's not just about receiving an organ, it's about keeping that organ and keeping it healthy. We would really like to harvest technology to build more organs to overcome the shortage of donors and also to build organs that match your body. The way we've chosen to do that is take advantage of nature's platform. That is to harvest stem cell biology, use stem cells that exist in every person, and also to take organ, organs that otherwise couldn't be used for transplant, wash the cells out of those organs in a process we call decellularization that was developed in my group, and then transplant stem cells back in. It really gives us an opportunity to build both simple and complex tissues in a way that could actually end both of the problems currently existing in the organ transplantation field. It's an exciting time and it's an honor to be able to talk with you today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Doris, and that was a good description of decellularization, but I think we have a video that shows in more detail about exactly what's involved. The process starts by removing a heart from an animal cadaver, in this case, a rat. A catheter is inserted into the organ and a solution slowly drains cells from the heart. Over the course of several hours, the solution removes everything but the extracellular matrix. After the heart is completely drained, it is ready to be reseeded with a fresh crop of cells. At this point, we inject the scaffold with cells, your cells. We leave it in the lab for about a week, and after that, the cells actually begin to contract and the heart starts to pump. In theory, the decellularized organ, now with cells, is on the way to becoming a new heart. So um, that's one of the new techniques that's being used to, uh, to address this problem of organ sca scarcity. Another is to use 3D printing, which we've all heard of, but maybe we haven't heard about it being used in this way, uh, to create new organs and tissues. And uh, Dr. James is, is an expert in that field, which is uh, 3D printing for biology is called bioprinting, and he's an expert there. And I wonder if you could tell us some of the, the, the challenges that you see in bioprinting for creating organs and tissues, and what are some of the successes so far? Well, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me today. Um, so for over 20 years, we have been developing tissues and organs uh, that could help patients. Um, and over about 10 years ago, uh, we got interested in bioprinting technology because uh, it, it would serve as a great tool to build clinically relevant but complex uh, tissue structures uh, with precision and reproducibility. So for those of you who are not familiar with uh, 3D bioprinter, it, it is just like an inkjet printer uh, that, uh, that is used at home. 
but using uh, inks uh, that consist of different tissue elements such as cells and biomaterials, gels and other uh, uh, sort of drugs uh, as well as polymeric materials. So uh, the only difference is that uh, instead of using a color ink, you know, we would use uh, those uh, tissue elements uh, placed in different cartridges and uh, that you would uh, order the printer to print uh, as you would with home printer. Now, unlike the inkjet printer or other consumer printers, uh, which prints in two-dimensional images, uh, the 3D printer allows uh, the printer to print repeated images over and over again, which would uh, build uh, and transition from two-dimensional uh, two images into three-dimensional tissue structures. So using this approach, we have been able to bioprint uh, different uh, tissues such as uh, muscle tissue, uh, cartilage tissue, and bone tissue that could be implantable uh, in vivo. So, uh, you know, we strongly believe that this technology holds a great promise in uh, engineering new tissues and organs uh, that would provide the patients with necessary uh, organs and tissues uh, in the future. Okay, well, thank you. We'll come back to that and get some more news on exactly which organs are most likely to come along from that, that technology if it does. Um, and now we're going to kind of the second part of this event, which is where we're going to be um, kind of more, a bit more give and take to talk about, um, and everyone here can feel free to, to jump in. Uh, if you want to say something, please uh, uh, alert me and I can call on you too if you're, if you're not having, able to do that. Um, to find out, um, you know, talking about the, the new approaches uh, to solve some of these problems. So I think to start with, I think everyone, I was looking at my, checking my driver's license, and I did. I think for a long time I did not have my little donor card uh, checked, but I did. And I think that's one critical way, right, to, uh, to make sure that there are enough organs around. Um, I was glad that I had this before this event. But um, anyway, um, I, I wonder, um, and maybe Frank, you can talk about this first. Um, you know, what, what can be done to increase the availability of do donor organs and tissues? So there's been a campaign in the United States to enlist all of us in our society to be an organ donor, organ tissue donor. And it's done at the motor vehicle registry when you get your license. There are now 140 million people that are signed up to be organ donors. Uh, what does that do? It creates a culture of those who are concerned about their fellow man at the time of their death. And it's a very noble act. It also creates an environment when our organ donation coordinators are before the family and the next of kin of the individual who's dying to display that consent to be an organ donor to the family as a testimony of the individual and fulfill their desire and right to be an organ donor. So many of our donors today are now those that have, have been registered and it is helping us greatly increase the number of organ donors in the United States. Just a quick question. What exactly did I get permission for people to do to me? <laughs> Take all tissues and organs? The first thing, David, would be to determine the suitability of your organs at the time of death as to whether they would be functional and transplantable. That's the first piece. 
Uh, then the second is to review with whomever would be your next of kin what opportunities there would be for organ donation. And yes, it does. It would include, conceivably, <laughs> your heart, lungs, and the thoracic cavity, your liver, your kidneys, the intestine, conceivably the pancreas, depending on your age, uh, and then tissues. So uh, all of which we should be biologically cognizant will decay within a matter of days upon your demise, understandably, respectfully. So uh, there is a great opportunity of science, medicine, to transfer the organs that I've just mentioned from you to another individual. So yes, that, that, that's what might be entailed. Well, and not to overshare here, but I know that it's only been, it's been less than two weeks, there was the first uh, penis transplant operation uh, here, and I wonder about tissues. I mean, bo bones, limbs, yeah. appendages, is that also? That, that is correct. And uh, if we just contemplate a moment for that, it, it, to me, it is a display of the advance, technically, of what can be done in transplantation. These are individuals who might have suffered as a result of war and or cancer and provide a new opportunity for them for life. And, and so to me, it was a, a very telling and important advance in the organ donation history that, that just occurred days ago through the Mass General Hospital and the New England Organ Bank, yes. So, um, Dan, what about, you know, again, the same question, what can be done to increase the, you know, the, increase the availability of organs and obviously focusing on your, your uh, perspective as an ethicist? Well, one thing, one remark I'd like to make is that um, in, implicit in your question, what, what have I gotten myself into here? I think what I heard was, can I trust you? And that's a key question. Uh, I've talked to people in countries where the donation rate is very, very low, and uh, some of these countries have the option of um, uh, indicating that you'd be willing to be a, a donor. <laughs> and I ask people who, in this in this country, uh, would if they were American citizens, you would expect that they would know about it and would have donated. And I say, why haven't you agreed to that? And they say, well, <laughs> what you know, I'm not going to check that thing because once I do. God only knows what they're going to do to me, you know, when I'm in the hospital because I become a very valuable resource for them, and they're genuinely afraid that they're not going to get good care. Now, I hope it's true that in the United States, because I believe it is, but um, uh, I hope it, that my belief is correct that in the United States people don't have that fear. We really don't think that there's going to be any uh, uh, any less good care of you at the end of your life because you represent a possible source of organs. And that's a fantastically valuable resource that we have. Without that, without the belief that uh, that uh, your care won't be compromised, and also I think also we could add, without the belief that the system is run fair and square and equitably, uh, then people are not going to sign those things. Now the fact is that only about half of Americans have signed. Why have those other Americans signed? Is it because they harbor fears like the ones I, I don't know? Be interesting to know, but. Uh, it, it doesn't look like there's a good reason, based on everything that I know about the system, there's no good reason for them to fear that uh, their care will be compromised if they sign or that uh, the system isn't being run in a, in a pretty equitable way. 
So first task, I think, is for each of us who knows somebody who hasn't signed, ask them, why haven't you signed? It might mean not only one person's life, but maybe several people's lives could be saved if you would just sign. Uh, now, uh, we can go beyond that. Uh, the, the fact is, it's very hard to get the number of, uh, of uh, 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 people on that list to grow. Uh, it's hard to increase the supply of organs. And uh, the number of people who are on waiting lists and who are dying because they can't get an organ seems to be growing. And so, understandably, there, people are looking at more radical uh, departures to see whether or not some of them might work. And if you want to, we can talk about some of those departures. Uh, for example, the idea of an organ market, which people would be given a handsome amount of money for agreeing to uh, be put on the registry for a, a cadaver donation when they die, or in the case of kidneys, um, to uh, sell one of their kidneys uh, right now for cash. Um, for some people, there are concerns that this, whether or not this would really increase the supply because you start offering cash, who's going to donate then? And for others, it doesn't, it's not a question of whether it's going to increase the supply. They just think it's wrong in principle, uh, a fundamental ethical objection. So we can discuss those questions too. David, I want to make three very, very brief but important comments. Number one, the trust piece that Dan just mentioned. Uh, I want to assure the American people, if I can, and I can, that you're dead at the time of your organ donation. And so that's a very important aspect of that trust, that you are indeed dead when organs are recovered. Number two, growing of the list that Dan just mentioned. I don't think we can have an expectation that indefinitely to continue growing the list without addressing the preventive aspects of medicine that would forestall people having organ failure to begin with. And it is especially true about kidney failure. There are ways that we can approach this medically by monitoring hypertension, et cetera, and, and the diabetic epidemic that we are faced around the world. We can alter the number of individuals that are making the list grow. And then third, the remedies that uh, I think we'll get into. Yeah, yeah that, that's, a, that's a place of further substantial discussion. Well, I, yeah, we'll get into that also, but I did want to ask, and maybe I don't know if this is for, for both of you. Well, actually, let me, let me turn to Doris for a minute. Doris, from, as your, from your perspective as a scientist who's trying to kind of uh, circle around this problem, what do you think can be done to increase the availability of, of organs right now? As, as you just heard, I think there are really three things that can be done. One is a policy issue. We could consider rather than having an explicit consent like we do in the U.S. where you have to say you want to be an organ donor, we could have a presumed consent policy like there exists in Europe, for example, in Spain, where a family is asked rather, would you like to opt out of organ donation rather than would you like to opt in? And I think that's a policy consideration that should should go forward. But, but as was just mentioned, uh, prevention is a huge step. And regenerative medicine is really where we focus to try to intervene earlier in the process of kidney, liver, heart, lung diseases to prevent the, um, prevent the need for organ transplantation. And then finally, the, the, an important point that you need to consider if our new technologies are going to go forward, like building an organ 
or maybe even bioprinting with with uh, matrices that are derived from organs. We need to also consider families being asked for consent for the organs that are otherwise not transplantable to be used for research. That doesn't happen everywhere today, and that's an unmet need that could greatly improve our access to building new solutions. Well, David, I, like, now one other thing about organ availability, if I may. Can I just bring this to attention, Jen? We're at the threshold of a new day in organ donation. It's a very exciting time for me, even at this juncture of my, my life and time in, in organ donation and transplantation. Uh, and it's something that just, uh, Doris just brought to attention. It's the research aspects that are going on that are unprecedented until these recent years. We're now able to recover organs and place them to an extracorporeal apparatus and do a test transplant in advance. So if we take a liver that may not be suitable for transplantation at the instant of an individual's death, but place that onto a machine and see if the organ could be repaired in advance of transplantation, that's what's happening to expand the opportunity of organs to be available. It's certainly the case as well now for the lungs. I should say to you that we will expand greatly in this country lung transplantation because this technology is evolving where we can send a lung that is not good currently at the time of someone's death. It has a pneumonia, some infection. All of that could be resolved by taking the lung placing it to an apparatus and resolving the <coughs> obstacle of the transplantation at the time of the individual's death. So I should say that that's evolving for heart and lung and liver, and I anticipate it soon for the kidneys. So we will increase the opportunity of organ transplantation by that technology that's emerging. Well, let me, that's something you were mentioning, or I guess Doris also was mentioning this idea in Europe, there are different uh, ways to do consent. We have explicit consent in this country, and we all know what happened with Obamacare. People don't want to be forced to do anything, right, buy insurance, whatever. So, Dan, I'm wondering, is it, is it ethical to have an implied consent, so like the, as, in, as in Spain, so pretty much organs can be taken uh, from everyone who dies without their, without their explicit consent? Well, you know, we don't have a voluntary taxation system in this country either. <laughs> and if, if, we, if we did, we wouldn't get very far. Let's, so let's be let's be clear, though. Uh, the opt-out option doesn't mean your organ will be taken without your consent. It means the families ask uh, whether you want to opt out, and you have that opportunity. But what does happen much more often is that there are organs that are available for research opportunities and for, um, for, uh, for, un for the unmet needs. Spain actually has extra organs that because there are so many available. David, I have to make a comment about that. Doris is exactly right. And all of our organ banks in the United States are urged to explore the opportunities of research with families if the organs are not suitable for clinical transplantation. So I can assure you in this audience and the people that are watching that that is a mandate that's brought by um, those who oversee the practice of transplantation to be requesting of families the opportunity for research at the time of someone's death if 
the organ cannot be immediately used. And the other point that Doris just made about the opt-out, opt-in system, uh, yes, I'm, we're all very familiar with what occurs in Europe. Uh, I'm very proud, if I should say, of the American system that people sign up in advance and they make their intentions known. In Spain, just as Doris mentioned, you still have to make a request of the family and they can decline on the individual's uh, right to be a donor or not. In this country, we value the human rights and the right of an individual to choose for themselves. So it's not as a matter of draft, but it's a matter of the intent of the individual to be fulfilled. And that's what I find so um, valued about our system of the registry. Uh, could I, could I just briefly add that if your family doesn't know your wishes, though, there's, a, there's often a disconnect between the individual and the family. And I think that's one thing that we could do a better job of here in the U.S. And I'm not sure how, but I would love to hear your thoughts. We'll get to some of those thoughts in a bit when we wrap up and ask each of you for policy uh, recommendations. Dan, I wonder, um, another thing that's come up is the idea of having a, an organ market, buying and selling organs. What are some of the, the, the issues there? Well, the first thing is we don't know whether this is really going to increase um, the availability of organs. Um, there's one country in the world in which uh, something close to kidney selling is legal, and that is uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And the Iranian authorities claim that since they've instituted this system, uh, the waiting list for kidneys has disappeared. Um, Iran is a complicated uh, uh, society, and it's difficult to get a, um, uh, uh, good data from there. Uh, the government's very proud of what they've done. Uh, reports coming in from um, sources within Iran and outside indicate that there are problems that the government may not be owning up to. It's not clear that, that their experience could be um, uh, 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 simply replicated here. So why not have a, a market for organs, at least to try it? Well, so as I mentioned before, um, one concern is that if you start paying for organs, people who are donating organs are going to look and say, look, um, why should I be donating this? My, these organs are worth a lot of money, so I'd have to be a fool to just give it away. And um, that's not good. So you won't want to dry up the number of, of uh, donations simply in order to increase the number of organs that you'd, you'd buy. Uh, if it might even turn out you'd have fewer to distribute. Second thing, this is something that's come up in, uh, in the case of blood supplies. Um, once the, uh, the, the money is what is the, uh, the, the solvent that gets an organ out of a body, so to speak, you have to worry about the motivations of the people who are selling. And uh, uh, the, for the person who's seeking the money, they have now a motive uh, that has nothing to do with health to try to make sure that, that uh, they can enter into one of these contracts. So uh, would the quality of the organs be uh, affected? Would people uh, claim to have excellent health histories uh, in order to enter into these contracts? Apparently in Iran, what I've heard from informal sources, including some in the country, uh, that has happened. Uh, now, we don't want that. We want the system to be, as I said before, based on trust, everybody believing that it's completely above board, highest professional standards. 
And that's what keeps the quality high and um, uh, also keeps the donation rate high. So the, the problem with the market idea, although it's certainly true that in other areas uh, we can talk about um, markets have increased supplies, uh, when we have something as uh, ethically delicate as uh, human organs, turning to a market, even on a trial basis, may have effects that will be very hard to reverse. And if they're negative, um, we may regret that we, that we did that. So, uh, Frank, I wonder if you could weigh in on that also. But if you would tell us, before, before we started today, uh, you were talking about your, your trip to China recently, which is another whole <laughs> issue about the ways to procure organs. So tell us a little bit what we were talking before the, the event. Today. Okay, well, um, first of all about Iran. I've had the occasion to uh, go to Iran and see their transplant donation and transplantation system. And I actually invited back for January 2017, having just been with a colleague in China from Tehran, who would say, as Dan has indicated, uh, the governmental claims about uh, resolution of wait list is simply not true. And moreover, there is an aspect of Iranians who are great truthful and proud people of their history uh, not to want to continue to be associated with a market system that denigrates individuals, uh, exploits them for their organs. So for the very reasons that Dan has just talked about, I wish to set aside the Iranian system as any model that this United States uh, would want to contemplate. Uh, Dan has forcefully uh, brought to attention in a compelling way, why not the markets? And, and yet, uh, having been around this world, I want to add a comment about it, that if the United States were to adopt such a market, it would be a disaster for us in our WHO efforts uh, to bring a self-sufficiency of organization and transplantation in a country such as the Philippines or in Egypt or in Latin America. Now regarding China, uh, China exemplifies what can go wrong if it all starts from the get-go in an unethical way. And for the people of this room and who's listening, for the uh, most of China's experience in organ donation was to recover, remove organs from individuals that were being executed for a capital crime. And the rationale of the Chinese people were, was to say that uh, this individual could recompense themselves or resolve whatever had been their crime by making for that donation. Uh, that's theoretically, conceivably understandable, but it's fraught with corruption. And so the system be indeed be, it became corrupt all the way down the line from why someone might be executed, the warden of the prison who's on the take to identify. And I'll just give you this anecdote. My colleagues, for example, in Australia, their patient knew they had to get to China by next Tuesday because they have a B blood type. And a B blood type individual was being executed so they could undergo liver transplantation. Now you see the extent of what can come from such a system. So China's moving away from that and they're asking of the international community to help in the development of an infrastructure of an organ donation system much akin to what I've experienced and we've been developing here in the United States for the last 25 years. So that's the China story for the moment. But I do wish to echo the points that Dan made uh, regarding the market system and why we should not contemplate it for the U.S. 
Um, are Americans traveling abroad for, uh, to get uh, organs? Not as much as they may have. Uh, so for example, they could no longer go to China as they once did, or to the Philippines, or to places in Latin America. Uh, the WHO is doing uh, an, a large effort to understand the transparency of where individuals come. Similarly, uh, this afternoon, late this afternoon, we, we, we are uh, examining data as to what patients come into the United States from foreign countries uh, to undergo transplantation. So that transparency becomes very important for us in the trust of the system. And it's also very important for us to say to the countries of the Middle East or wherever it may be uh, traveling to East Asia, India, Egypt for transplants, they have a responsibility not to abdicate in letting their patients go from one place to another, but to develop their own organ donation systems in Saudi Arabia, for example, or in Kuwait, or in Qatar, as they're doing, so that patients are not then left to have to travel elsewhere for organ transplants. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and, uh, and, and talk about uh, the technology. Um, and the idea of, of bioprinting is, is such a fascinating one. And I wonder, uh, James, if you could talk about where we are with that. My understanding is that there have already been some people who've received transplants, uh, but maybe I'm wrong. What, 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 have, what have we done so far and what, what is most likely to bear fruit soon? Yeah, so uh, the technology is uh, still in development uh, phase. Um, you know, obviously, there are technological challenges that we have to overcome in order to use it for, uh, you know, for clinical use. Um, so some of, you know, we are able to print and demonstrate the feasibility of this technology but uh, in order to uh, use it for clinical use, it has to be further developed. And the areas that uh, uh, need to be developed includes uh, obviously hardware, uh, software uh, programming is an area that, uh, that is currently underdeveloped uh, that would uh, instruct the printer to print uh, what and how uh, and at what precision and also uh, development of bioink. Uh, unlike uh, Dr. Taylor's approach where you start with uh, a defined scaffold uh, uh, from nature, this uh, technology uh, requires building uh, structures uh, from ground up. Uh, so we need to develop uh, uh, biocompatible bio or safe uh, biomaterials that would that can be developed, uh, delivered uh, through a, a small nozzle and uh, be uh, able to support its uh, three-dimensional structures as you, uh, you know, put layer by layer over on top. So those are some of the uh, technological challenges that we have. But more importantly, let's say if we, uh, you know, have developed all those and we're ready to uh, you know, transition into the clinic to help patients, uh, but, uh, you know, we have to demonstrate the safety of uh, this technology and the safety of the organs that uh, are printed uh, through meeting the uh, requirements of our regulatory agencies. 
Well, thank you. And we're going to open up to questions in just a minute, but I did want to ask one quick question to Doris about uh, one thing we haven't really talked about is xenografts using uh, animal tissues and organs uh, and transplanting them to humans. So what's, where, where are we with that? Well, in our worldview, xenografts may play a role in increasing the availability of tissues because we can get pig hearts, pig livers, pig kidneys. And as you know, pig valves, heart valves, are already being used for transplant into humans. So it's not, an, uh, uh, it's not aberrant to think about using non-human scaffolds if in fact we cover those with human cells. And I do believe that there is a potential there. I will say the decellularization process has been used clinically. It's been used, the bladders that you talked about earlier were decellularized bladders. So simple tissues like a balloon or a tube, a windpipe, a trachea, have already been transplanted in humans. And I think going forward, the real challenge is the complexity of the scaffold and if we can't get access to human scaffolds, it's going to have to be a xenograft. All right, thank you. Do we have a question from uh, online audience? Yes, we do. We have a lot of questions <laughs> on Twitter, Facebook, our chat. So um, thank you for talking about bioprinting. We've had a number of those come in, so I won't take those now. Um, this one is from Facebook from Farhan Ahmed. How does informed consent of organs for research purposes play into the moral calculus? I, I would, the, I think the straightforward answer is uh, that it plays into the calculus just the way that they're uh, authorizing the use of one's organs uh, for transplant. Uh, so uh, as long as you have uh, uh, confidence in the system and you don't think that the research would be unethical, and I can't imagine why someone would think that, then you can, of course, say, I'd like my organs to be used for research and get upset if they say, um, we won't do that. Lisa, I'd like to, may I make a response yes, about yes, that? Yes, please. No organs can be recovered for research without the oversight of the organ donation agency in that locale. So one of my responsibilities as the chief medical officer of the New England Organ Bank is to review every research protocol that comes to us in the consent process that's done for organ donation that would be for clinical use, the family is engaged to know specifically as to what that might be for the research purpose. And so I can be assuring to you that the context of this in a scientific way is to see whether there can be an advance clinically on organ transplantation as a result of the research. Thank you. In a way, the, uh, donating organs for research has the potential for saving many, many more lives than individual organs Why? because you might make it possible to come up with advances such as the ones we've heard about that could make um, uh, organs available to everybody, not just the relative few that we can now handle. So to echo what, just, if Dan, what Jen just mentioned, before we, we were embarking, as we are now doing in this region, on the removal of a liver that may not be satisfactory of clinical transplantation, placing it on the machine, we've been doing that through the research efforts to know that that could be feasibly done. Yes. Great, thank you. Thank you, I'll do one more from online here. Um, this is Jennifer from Jennifer Ritter. In light of the anticipated advances with the artificial 
pancreas and islet cell transplantation. What are your thoughts about pancreas transplants, specifically the pros and cons regarding a pancreas transplant for a post-kidney transplant diabetic? At this point, is it better to wait for the technology of an artificial pancreas to be realized and avoid a traumatic surgery, or does the control achieved by having a functioning pancreas outweigh the risks? Frank, you know, yeah. wait on that one. Sure. That's a, that's a very comprehensive question to have a comprehensive, <laughs> yeah. all right. At the moment, the reason why a pancreas transplant is done is because it contains islets of Langerhans that provide insulin for us. Um, the pancreas is an endocrine warehouse of maintaining for us an accurate blood sugar that keeps us conscious and functional. They're essential. And the diabetic individual has two ways that it comes out that they become diabetic. From a genetic predisposition that their islets are attacked in an autoimmune phenomenon, that they lose their islets because their islet cells become the target of an immune attack when they're young, or in later in life because of dietary issues, and again, perhaps a genetic predisposition, you have a type two diabetes where it now evolves in your later aspects of life. Okay. Pancreas transplantation up to now had been mainly done by a whole pancreas. And it's a technically formidable procedure that has a rate of complication. I've done them in my own career of transplantation. If you could isolate the islet cells and only come with the islet cell transplantation, then that would be a much more efficient way of doing so. But the technique of islet isolation has not yielded enough islets from any single deceased organ donor. And the selection of the individuals to undergo that transplant is limited by many clinical characteristics. So um, Doris can answer about what may be the future of a uh, implantable pancreatic tissue. Uh, but for the moment, if there's an opportunity to undergo a kidney and pancreas transplant simultaneously, that seems to be the best clinical outcome. Or if you've undergone a kidney transplant and you can come along with a subsequent whole pancreas transplant, that may be as well a satisfactory option. Doris, you may wish to comment about the other uh, element of this. Yeah, how far away are we from an artificial, uh, from, a, from a, a decentralization process to yield a, a transplantable pancreas? I certainly think, I certainly, that research is very, uh, moving it forward actually pretty well. Um, there's some exciting new um, results that will probably be coming out in the next couple of years from the University of Wisconsin in that area. What's, what was just mentioned, though, by, by Frank is that the pancreas is not just an exocrine organ. It's also an endocrine organ. And we have to build both parts of the pancreas if we're going to 
recreate um, what nature has built. By having a scaffold that actually helps the cells organize in an appropriate way, it's actually pretty straightforward to let the cells migrate to the appropriate places and begin to grow up in those environments. That's what I think our technology offers, this educated scaffold. We used to call it, when we were just working on the heart, our smart heart, because the environment in which stem cells find themselves seems to dictate what they do and what they become. So I think we have a whole a plethora of opportunities ahead of us, a, a very bright future in building many of these more complex organs. Isn't that a fun comment? Just think about what Doris has just said. When you have the scaffold, and this is her great research, when you have the scaffold and you take these stem cells, that are sort of pluripotential, and they go into the scaffold, they know what to do. Wait a minute, they know how to organize. They know how to get themselves all lined up. That's the fun thing that Doris has identified that's really so brilliant. Thank you, do we have any time for any audience uh, questions? I do just wanna take one more from online, then we can do an audience, because okay. we have a lot coming in on stem cells. So if I could just ask this, I studied bioethics, and research the ethics of embryonic and adult stem cell research. What ethical standards can we also include to make sure embryo donors have informed consent? Um, the, for the most part, uh, the getting consent from the donors is a matter of uh, um, approaching people who have used uh, IVF clinics to try to have a child. And if there's a surplus of embryos and the, uh, they don't, they're not going to use some of the embryos that were created, then they're asked whether or not they would uh, agree to let these be used by science. Now, for the most part, uh, this is a much better use of those embryos because otherwise uh, they'd be stuck in a freezer forever and they're not going to be used to create a baby or they're thrown out. So uh, consent isn't really um, a, a, a very bold thing to do. It, it sort of makes, makes sense. Now, uh, what's happened in recent years, because of, this is such a politically uh, sensitive question, uh, is that uh, the validity of the consent given by some donors uh, to procedures uh, that scientists only thought of using these embryos for last week uh, has been challenged. Uh, you know, if the, don if the embryo was uh, donated several years ago and these new uses for the embryos were contemplated back then, in what sense do we think that the, uh, the, the family that donated the embryos could possibly have consented to this use? This is a philosophical question. Uh, to my mind, uh, the, the important question to ask is, do we have any reason to think that they wouldn't want their, the uh, embryo use for an unanticipated use when it all goes toward understanding the process of uh, embryological development, which of course is all about making sure that we have pregnancies that are successful and children that are healthy. Um, I can't imagine uh, having reservations about that. But the government has, uh, I think, perhaps unnecessarily tied itself up over this very question about what constitutes informed consent uh, with uh, donated embryos because they're uh, because they're under siege, essentially. Thank you. Thank you. And audience, uh, who has a question here? I just wanted to know what you thought about, my son actually had a liver transplant at seven months old, and he's now 25, 
and he's, he's relisted for the last five years. And what you think about why age isn't um, th considered, because being over 18, he's now competing with 50, 60, 70 year olds. I mean, we've put all these resources into his life. I think that should matter for something. Like, where do you see that going? Uh, you've touched on one of the key questions uh, about deciding who gets a rare organ like a liver. Um, uh, now, in the case of a younger candidate, uh, there are two questions, really. One is, should we favor the candidate because the candidate is young? And separate from that, although uh, not entirely, is the question of how long the patient is most likely to live if they get the organ. So there are sometimes when putting an organ in an older patient uh, can be predicted to uh, deliver more years of life than putting it in a younger one because of other problems that the younger person may have. Now, I hope your son is healthy in other ways, in which case that uh, he would uh, sort of earn points for being both young and healthy so that uh, uh, on both, both scores he would be, um, uh, uh, he would uh, qualify. But at the same time, there are people who think that uh, this would constitute age discrimination. And why is it that you would decide that a young person's life is worth saving in preference to an older person? Uh, there are honest differences of opinion about this. Frank, maybe you can talk about how this works out in the MERS um, uh, um, right. uh, guidelines. Well, just a comment about allocation to begin with. We don't have enough organs. So you have to balance two principles. The one, you want it to be fair, providing for those in need as fairly equitably as you can. And at the same time, the other side of the coin, effective, best use. We have a responsibility making policy that it will be the most effective use of the organ this scarce supply. Now, when it comes to liver transplantation, best use has come about by outcome, and FAIR has come about by who has the highest risk of mortality by being on the list. Now, we're in the midst of liver transplantation, all right, since that's your specific question. In the policy of the United States, we came away from time waiting because the amount of time that an individual has waiting may not be as important factors as what is your risk of mortality on the list, and what might be then the very best use of the organ in, in, in outcome. I don't know anything about your son for the rest of this audience, but that he's waited five years, I have to wonder whether his score of risk of mortality is not that of those that are getting the organs currently because their risk of mortality is higher than what he may have at the moment. It's the only thing that I can think of. Because otherwise, he'd be getting a liver transplant if his risk score was to that level, to that threshold. Um, in terms of the children, yes, we have a policy in the United States to favor those uh, children. Now that's for the liver. Time waiting is an important factor on kidney allocation. The longer you have that you are on dialysis, it does indeed affect your mortality. So we have time waiting as an element of the allocation policy for kidneys, but we don't have it for liver because it ultimately is not nearly as consequential as 
What's your risk of dying on the list? And what's going to be the most effective outcome of that, of that transplant? But, so thank you for your understanding yeah. that I could make that response to you. And we wish, of course, we wish your son well. Yeah, best yeah. wishes to you and your son. Do we have time for another question? No? Okay. So maybe each of you could take, say, a minute or so to, uh, to give us a, a policy takeaway. What policy would you like to see uh, a change going forward that could help solve this problem? Doris, do you want to start? Sure. I, I would love to see the, the opt-out versus opt-in policy for organ donation in the U.S. and a higher awareness of the need of, for organs for research purposes to actually impact the future of organ transplantation. And thank you very much. Thank you. James, did you, what about you? What's your policy takeaway? Well, uh, you know, I'm uh, with uh, Dr. Taylor because, uh, you know, I, I do think uh, that uh, organs for research is, um, you know, are very needed uh, to uh, take, the, uh, take our technology uh, forward. Okay, thank you. Uh, Frank, you want to? So half of the kidney donors in the United States are living. And I'm completely with... Professor Wickler opposing an organ market. Rather than exploit our living donors, we need to care for them, and we don't. We don't know their ultimate outcome. We know that they have a certain amount of risk in being a living donor, but it is safe, and that risk is small. But we've not done well by the living donor in providing care providing the resources for follow-up, providing for them to make certain that they are not at a monetary loss. I'm opposed to monetary gain as a motivation for their donation. It sweeps away all of the nobility and goodness of that act, and it's all of the points that Dan made. But we could be better in policy in this country in providing care for our donors, and I think we need to get at that. Okay, Dan. Oh, I agree with it, what's been said, but uh, let me uh, change the focus a little bit to the individual. We may think that these are policies, uh, policy questions that are handled at some high level that we don't participate in, but actually uh, it's what the individual decides that is going to maybe def uh, determine whether one or many people live or die. You can decide to sign the organ donor agreement when you get your license plate, license, uh, uh, driver's license, sorry. Uh, and you can make a fateful decision, a very difficult decision, uh, to donate an organ while you're alive, a kidney especially, to a loved one, or even uh, to, uh, to participate in some of the pairing uh, exercises that allow for uh, organs to be shared in a, in a group without any exchange of money. So there's a lot that individuals can do. There are a few individuals, uh, I'm not holding up as a model, but I think it's it's fascinating to think about them, who walk into clinics and they say, I have two kidneys, I only need one, please take one for me and use it to save a life. Um, I've been corresponding with one young man who, who took a philosophy class and decided at the end of the class this is something he should do, and he approached a big university transplant unit and said, uh, I'm convinced this is what I should do. They had many meetings and they said, okay, and they took it and he saved a life. 
So there are many choices that individuals can make. Now, the policy here is a policy of trying to bring to each American and others too, the fact that we have choices to make, ethical choices on which the lives of others may uh, hang. And uh, we should take these very seriously. And I think if people uh, do think about them, more and more will make one that favors life. Thank you. Uh, well, I guess that's the, that's the end of our program here. I want to say thank you very much to our panelists, uh, Dr. Delmonico and uh, Dr. Wickler, and also our uh, remotely, uh, Dr. Taylor and Dr. Yu. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much for the people here, and thanks to everyone online. Thank you. Bye-bye. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.